0: So I learned very uh, early in my fly fishing experience that you, uh, if you can park your car next to a river or stream and walk less than 50 feet to fish, it's going to be overfished. To really catch fish, you've either got to be fishing on private land or you're going to have to hike. And since I can't afford private land usually, it's hiking. On this particular June, early June day, a group of eight of us, Uh, left uh, the base camp at the the base of the Rocky Mountain National Park and uh, for a a four-and-a-half-mile hike up a mountain to fish a trout lake at about 13,000 feet. The advantage of that is that we knew we were going to be the first guys to fish that lake for the year because it had been snowed in. the entire winter as a matter of fact as we made our way to the top at four and a half miles we literally post holed through snow the last half mile fortunately i had thermal waders so i waded in found a good fishing spot and i caught fish all you know all day long i was catching so many fish my legs were going numb you know in the boots i couldn't feel my legs but i wasn't about to get out of the water because i was just catching fish and finally I had to get out of the water because I couldn't feel anything. And I barely made it out. And to warm my legs up, I decided I'd take a little walk around that lake in the snow and just see if there were some other better fishing spots in this crystal clear, glassy trout lake high in the mountains. I come to a little stream that I had to jump across. And as I jump across, I scared a trout who was sitting in that stream. And it darted and wedged itself between two rocks and couldn't move. And I saw it move and I turned back around and I watched it. And I stood there for about four or five minutes hoping that I would see it free itself and realized it wasn't going to be able to. And so I got down in the water and very gently I put my finger in the mouth of that trout You know, and my other hand on his tail, and I gently just wiggled him back and freed him from that hard-pressed, difficult kind of place that he was in. It was the catch of the day, because then I held up my fish to the guys and said, Hey, look, guys, I caught one barehanded. (laughs) Wish I'd had a picture. Paul, in this text that we're going to read this morning, says, I am hard-pressed. I'm between a rock and a hard place. It's the key verse at the end of chapter 21, verse 21. For me, Paul says, living is Christ and dying is gain. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. Sunechomai, I am hard-pressed, in the Greek, from both sides, I find myself in a strait. Like that fish, hard-pressed between a rock. And that fish's fate was in my hands, so Paul recognizes that his fate is in whose hands? There can be no question in Paul's mind who controls his fate. It's not Nero. It's not Rome. It's Christ. In the little book of Philippians, God is the main actor. God is the key factor in all of this. Because in 104 verses, in 51 of those verses, the name or names of God are... Given A total of 72 proper names for God in 104 verses. Is there any question in Paul's mind who holds him? Whose hands his faith is in. He says, and I am hard pressed. I don't know which that I would choose were I given opportunity to choose. Life or death. If you have the little outline that I put in the program this morning, I'd like for you to get it out for a moment. I think it would help us to... We talked last week about who the author of this letter to the Philippians is. It's the Apostle Paul. And, and so remind me, where is Paul? He's in prison in Rome. And he's been there for about two years. Imprisoned in Rome. And during that time, there had been messengers going back and forth between Rome and Philippi. And those destinations in that day and time were a month apart. It was no quick, easy journey by ship and by, you know, by on foot to get between those two places. But the church in Philippi, they have heard that Paul has, you know, had been taken to prison in Rome and was awaiting his trial there And they were concerned, and because they had had this long and very deep personal relationship with Paul, they sent, they sent Epaphroditus with a, a gift, an offering to help take care of Paul. You may not be familiar, but often in, in, particularly even in third world countries today, when someone gets thrown in prison, somehow the family has to find some way to provide food for that prisoner. It's not so in in our penal system. In our penal system, you get cable TV... And th- three nice meals a day. You know what I'm saying? But in, but in that day and time when someone was in prison, his support, his food had to come from somewhere else. So worried about him, the church in Philippi sends an offering with Epaphroditus to help provide for Paul while he's in prison because they're concerned for him. And when Epaphroditus arrives there, somehow on the journey, probably perhaps, he's been exposed in that long journey to some, some illness. And, and Epaphroditus nearly dies. He collapses once he gets there, and they literally have to nurse him back to health little by little. So in the meantime, there's a messenger that then goes back to Philippi to say that Epaphroditus has fallen sick. And so now the church in Philippi is not only concerned for Paul and his imprisonment, but now they're concerned for their friend and, and one of the elders of their church. Some think he might have even been the pastor of the church, who was now reported to be sick and dying. So you're getting the picture? So, so there's this, there is this reason why Paul is writing the letter. And if you have this little outline, I did a simple outline for you because I want to just emphasize to you some things uh, in, you know, from the letter of the Philippians. And so you'll see some words are highlighted here. Okay? Paul begins the letter in his greeting with gratitude, with a sense of gratitude for them because of their partnership with him in the gospel, because they entered into the work with Paul from the get-go and, 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 and have been fruitful, obviously, in the last nine to ten years since Paul founded the church there. So he expresses gratitude for them at the beginning. Where does he go at the end? To gratitude, there is a sort of a symmetry and a flow to the uh, to the, the letter to the Philippians. If you'll see it, he begins with gratitude. He ends with gratitude for their gifts, the current gift that he's just received, plus all the the others that we we learn about that have been received in the in the past. So it's so it is the, the book ends are gratitude. It's a it's a thank you note, if you will. Okay, okay, and then after his greeting. An introduction to them, you know, uh, and his prayer for them, you'll notice that he the first thing he does is he addresses their concerns for him in the letter, because they know he's imprisonment, that he's in prison. Okay? Okay. And after he addresses their concerns, then there's the first series of exhortations. Now, what's an exhortation? It's like a really strong encouragement that comes across like a command and with a sense of urgency. It's strong. Intentional, intensive kind of encouragement. So there are three, a series of three exhortations in the Philippian letter, and you'll notice that you know, the areas in which they deal with. First is, the first one is toward unity and courage in view of outside opposition. They're dealing with pressures from the world and from pressures from outside, external kind of pressures. So Paul deals with an exhortation. For them in that regard. And then he moves from that to, to an exhortation toward unity and humility inside the church. In the community of the church. Which we need to take a look at. And then lastly, he tells them to look inside. Yourself. To work out your salvation. Personally, your salvation with fear and trembling while recognizing the hand of God in your life. So there are three exhortations. And we'll need to look at those in the letter And then, right in the middle, he talks about these two messengers that he's sending back to them. He's sending Epaphroditus, who has now gotten well, back to them to encourage them and to report to them and to stay with them. But he's also sending a traveling companion with Epaphroditus, his young protege Timothy, who is going to be there to teach and to instruct and to exhort and encourage them in their faith. And so that's in the middle. Okay, then... He moves away from their concerns for him, and he begins to talk about his concerns for them. And there are two concerns for them in the letter, legalism and license. Legalism at the hands of Judaizers, those who are trying to make them keep strict, kind of Old Testament observances, laws and rules and customs and traditions. You know, so he, 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 he comes out in, in a warning to them about legalism and then about license, about not taking seriously their faith, their walk with God in obedience. And then a second series of exhortations. You see the symmetry? And in those, those last exhortations, there are two. One of them is to stand firm in unity. You've heard the word unity expressed three times already. It's, a key, it's one of the key words of, of the Philippian letter. An exhortation toward standing firm in unity and then toward the practice of Christian disciplines and virtues there as a As a way of practical application for their faith, so I would encourage you to take that if you would, and do some reading in Philippians on your own. use that as a bookmark, put it in your Bible. I know it won 't fold up and fit in your so, your smartphone case, but do the best you can with that. but I want you to have some sense of that' you know, saying and and I, you know i, I can 't help but sort of observe where Paul starts out here he he starts out with in a sort of a global kind of view, about talking about the challenges of dealing with the outside kind of world, if you will, and then the challenges that they face in terms of unity and humility within the body. And then he says, lastly, then now you go work on your salvation with fear and trembling. Most of us take it just the opposite. We walk into church and all we're concerned about is moi. How's this affect me? Just trying to work our own, you know, kind of <clears throat> figure this out for ourselves. You know, just saying. And some of us spend, we spend so much time there. We never, like Paul, get to the place where we really understand what it means to be in community, in a loving body of Christ, unified, working together. And, and we never invest much in what's going on in the outside world. It just sort of revolves, it stays around us. See, Paul is so different. His perspective is so different. Than most people's, isn't it? I mean, this guy's really been bit, you know, if if you will, um, by the gospel. Okay, so so we're going to begin reading with uh, with chapter one and with verse twelve. <clears throat> okay, so Paul's in prison, and uh, uh, and and here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thing. Paul has a definition of life. Paul has a definition of life that enables him to face. Anything, anything and everything, and it's because of his definition of life. You see, and so when you stop to think what you're living for, every one of us ought to be asking ourselves: like, What am I living for? Seriously. I mean, we talk about. I thought about that this week. We, we use the phrase, "Well, I've got to make a living," so we get we go to work every day, right? To make a living. But are we living? Or are we just going to work? Just getting up every day and then going back exhausted at the end of the day and watching a little TV and, you know, maybe uh, running through, a, you know, the, the, the fast food lane at the Whataburger. And we get up the next day and we start it over. What are you living for? See, Paul's living for something. Paul has a definition of life. So what's what's your life about? What defines you? Does your definition and will your definition of life support you through every circumstance, every eventuality, every challenge that comes, you see? So, So here you go, right? Verse 12. Now I want you, brothers, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. Right. Now, keep in mind, their concern is what? Their concern is for Paul and how he's doing in prison. What's Paul's concern? The gospel. It's his only concern. I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, I'm in prison. Yeah, you're right about that has actually resulted in the advancement or the advance of the gospel in two ways. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and the word there is the word literally in the, in the text, praetorium, the praetorium guard. The, so it has, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, praetorium guard and to everyone else that by imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Now, the Praetorium Guard, they were, they were the elite soldiers. These were the special forces guys. They would relate to Green Berets or Navy SEALs in our day. They were, they were assigned, they, they protected governors and emperors. Paul is in Rome, and he's being guarded by the Praetorium Guard And literally what that means is... Here's what that translates. He is chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't go to the restroom without a Roman soldier. you get that picture? And these guys come on in in what we believe was four-hour shifts. Every four hours it changes. A soldier comes in, unlocks those the chains and, and the, the manacles, puts himself in, locks himself in with Paul. Here's the, one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. And every four hours, he gets a new soldier chained to him. That's a captive audience. And what Paul is saying is, guys, you will not believe the gospel has spread among the whole praetorium guard because of my imprisonment that's one thing there's a second thing he says other workers and preachers have begun to step up in my absence that because I'm enchained, there are these others now that have become emboldened encouraged in their faith and they're stepping out and they're doing something I, I see an application here for Will Bend my days are limited here folks You know, that's bound. There's a date, June the 5th. It will be time in this congregation for some folks to be emboldened and out of faith to step up in my absence. You get it? It will happen. So you'd be praying about what you're to do, and you pray for others around you that they'll know what they're to do. But, because Paul says, one of the things that happens, when God took me out and me, and we're talking about, like we said last week, Paul is the quarterback of this movement of the gospel among the Gentiles. I mean, he's been the main, he's been the architect, the quarterback of it all. He's been the one calling the signals, and now he's benched. He's sat down. He's not available to the outside world. He's reaching the praetorium guard on the inside, but to the outside world, and what happens? He says, graciously, people have begun to step up and preach the gospel in my absence. Listen to what he says. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. <clears throat> now, there's a caveat here. To be sure, there are some who preach Christ out of envy and strife and others out of goodwill. These do so out of love. Those who do it out for Christ and out of goodwill do it because of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And others proclaim Christ out of rivalry. They're happy that Paul is locked up and in chains, right? It just gives them a chance for them to emerge so they can kind of be in the forefront and in control. They, do not, they don't do it sincerely Seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment, that in every way, whether out of false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed. Did I leave something out? Oh, yeah. What does it matter? You see, if it's all about you, it matters. But if it's not all about you, it doesn't matter. So Paul says, what does it matter? Whether they preach Christ out of envy and strife and of, of selfish motivation, or or they do it really out of love and out of a Christ-centeredness, he says, at least the gospel is being Proclaimed, And it, there is tremendous power in the gospel that God can hit straight licks with crooked sticks. He's been doing that for a long time. Seven, 17 years with this guy in the pulpit. Hitting some straight licks with crooked sticks. Right? Because of grace. Because it's all according to God's plan and God's purpose. That in every way Christ be proclaimed... And in this, he says, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He doubles down on the rejoicing here. I will rejoice because I know that this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus. Now, we need to pause there for a second because Paul uses the word for deliverance, salvation. This will lead to my salvation. Now, is Paul talking about being let out of jail? Or is he talking about something else? I want to suggest to you that there's a deeper thought here. You see, Paul understood that because of the finished work of Christ, we have been saved. And when we come to Christ, past tense, we are saved from, forgiven, you know, wiped clean and the penalty of sin is no more. There's no more a penalty for our sin, but we still live in a fallen world where there is the presence of sin and the power of sin operating, right? So salvation begins at a point in time and we are secure in relationship with him because in the finished work of Christ, by grace, when we receive Christ, we are saved. The penalty of sin is has been paid for us no longer. Are we under that penalty, under that debt? We are free. But salvation is also a process. There's a process of sanctification by which we have to be freed from the power of sin in our lives. And one day, one day from the presence of sin altogether when we leave this planet, when we leave this life. So in effect... Listen, here's what I think Paul's saying. It's really good that I've been here because God has used this work internally in my life, you know, to continue saving work in me. This hardship, this lockdown, this being chained, this, without the freedom you know to move about, God has used it in my life to continue the work of salvation in me. He's saying, "I really needed to be here. I needed to be here, and I know that this will lead to my salvation, the continuation of God's saving work in my life. Through what? Through two things. Through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't ever, ever, ever negate the power of somebody's prayer on your behalf. You know, there are people that fill out a prayer request form almost every week in this church and get prayed for by this staff every week because they do. Don't ever think that doesn't count. Paul says, I'm saying, God is continuing to do this saving work in me because you're praying. Because you're praying. And because the Holy Spirit's working. Holy Spirit always likes to work in partnership with his people. In your life, in my life. Verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with boldness, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, so Paul's in a Roman prison. He's awaiting a hearing before Caesar because he's appealed all the way to Caesar. So there won't be any further appeal. And when that verdict is given, he will either get life or death, and it won't take long. The sentence will be, you know, will be enacted immediately. If he's sentenced to death, that day they will take him out. And and because he's a Roman citizen, they'll put his head on a block and they will by sword chop off his head. Because they can't crucify a Roman. All the rest. But if you're a Roman citizen, you got the dignity. At least they just lopped off your head so you died immediately without further suffering. But Paul knows, and the Philippian church knows, that if he receives that sentence, that Paul literally is, his life is hanging in the balance between life and death. And he's saying, here's here's what I'm eager about. You know, my hope is that I won't be ashamed, but I'll be with full boldness. And Christ will be highly honored in my body. The Greek there is megalino. We get the word magnified. Christ will be Magnified. Christ will receive honor and glory in my death. He will receive honor and glory in my in my life, whichever one. It's all about the fact that I want him to receive honor and glory in it. So the question I've asked myself this week is that... Will I die in such a way that I will bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ? Because my day's coming, your day's coming. <laughs> Is my death going to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ? Is that the intent? Is that the desire of my heart? Is that the hope and the expectation? Is that how I want to go boldly and unashamedly? Is that to go to death in such a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ? You remember in John chapter 21 when Jesus called Peter aside and had to restore him, he denied him three times, and so Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter finally, okay, Lord, you know all things. Okay, So immediately after, after Jesus restores Peter and in, in that fellowship, He says to Peter, truly I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. And when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you, will carry you to where you do not want to go. And then John gives us a little parenthesis in the gospel. It's because it's his interpretation. It's, it's his thought, his commentary on what Jesus just said to Peter. This, parenthesis, this he said to show what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. And after he said it to him, he said, follow me. You know, a little over two years ago i 've been working with uh, a spiritual director, a guy named roy austin you 're going he 's going to be here on the, on June the fifth you know on last sermon day and and he had, by the way, he and I are going fishing this afternoon um, and because you know that friendship means the world to me he 's mentored me he 's challenged me incredibly he 's helped me to see um, the positive in the, in, the, in the midst of some deep negative stuff that I was trudging through. Um, but as we got into our relationship, about a year into our relationship of working together, his sweet wife Karen uh, was discovered. She 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 had a, a a cyst that came up on her shoulder, and and uh, and it was beginning to be painful. And then when they began to run tests on her, they discovered that it was the spread of cancer from her pancreas. And and Karen had. Uh, well, she 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 lived four more months, and uh, she called me, you know, and she said, "She said, Dave, I want you to be my pastor through this." And and I understand now why all that was important to her, because it wasn't about caring. it was really about getting it set up so somebody would be there to take care of Roy. It really was, because he knew that we were had become close in, in friendship. And so I was given the privilege of walking with Karen and with Roy through those four months. And I'm going to tell you, that last night in the hospital room, the the Celtic Christians talk about thin places where the presence of the God is so real. I'm telling you, Karen had the family gathered around her, and and she talked in such a way to encourage every one of them in their faith and expressed her love to them. And then she said to them, You must let me go. It's my time. You must let me go. She had spent the four months that she had left, you know, loving and preparing, in a loving way, preparing her family. And she passed over without any fear, total peace. And I told Roy afterwards, I said, Roy, I want to die like Karen. When my time comes, I want to die like Karen. I want to have the kind of peace and the kind of courage. I want to have the the kind of fearlessness and assurance that I'm just crossing over into the loving hands of God. You know, because Paul says, you know, Paul says simply this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is Gain. It's gain. If I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. If I don't, if I don't, and I don't know which one I should choose, I am pressed. I I have this desire to depart, to be with Christ. I, I, I truly do. I want to be with him, which is far better. He describes the gains as being far Far better. Interesting that in the original language here, it's the word "polys polys craton." He he doubles the adjective. It's like it is far far better. It is much more better. It's you know it's it's indescribable how much better it is to be with Christ. And I, I thought about that this this week because because last weekend we had the whole family gathered at our house, and you know my my sis and Gunter flew in from Minnesota, my brothers in from Colorado, my kids are. All there, and we had these big two-inch steaks, and we laughed, and and we hugged, and we and we told family stories, and and we just had the best time. And I tell you, I, I live for those moments with my family. And Paul says, "There's something far, far better than I can even imagining being." You're that close and that close-knit-in family and just really enjoying being together. I'm going, and, and, and Paul says, it's far, far better. To die is gain. So I had to ask myself, how will I die? Will I die in such a way that brings honor, that magnifies Jesus Christ? Will I die with unashamed will I die boldly will I die without fear will I die in a way that brings honor and glory to him what about you it's worth thinking about in it and secondly if I do live how will I spend my days that's the next question if I do live how will I spend my days all the days that I have left I should say how will I invest my days not just spend them, but maybe how would I invest the time that I have left? And interestingly enough for Paul, there's an answer. The clues are all right here. See, because Paul says, is if I die, it's gain, but if I live, it's Christ. What does it mean for Paul to say, for me to live is Christ? I, th- I think the answer is internally in the text. Listen, listen to what he says. He said, I'm pressed by, from both sides. I have the desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain, but to remain, that is, to keep living in the flesh, is more necessary for you. So where's the focus? He says, if I live, it'll be for fruitful ministry, and it'll be for your sake, because it would be because God would deem it necessary for you. Verse 25. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith. You seeing how Paul intends to invest the rest of his life? It's pretty clear. So that, verse 26, because of me, because of my influence, because of the way I live, because of my example, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus. Jesus. When I'm able to come to you again. So here's what here's what Paul defines his life this way. To me, for me to live is Christ. That's my definition of life. But let me tell you how I'm going to invest that. If I stick around, it's going to be so that I can have fruitful ministry. Because God has a purpose for me and a way to invest my life so it's fruitful for the kingdom on your behalf, because it's necessary for you, for your progress, for your joy in the faith and faith is that deep sense of trust so that you learn how to really trust Jesus not trust Paul not trust Dave not trust Kevin not trust you trust Jesus because he's the one who holds you in his hands he's the one that decides your fate and if he leaves you here you're Paul is saying i want you to invest well And then he follows it, and I'll end on this, with his first exhortation. And we're just going to read this, and then I'm going to just emphasize one sentence, and then we'll close. Paul, here's Paul's first exhortation of three exhortations, you remember, in the outline. Okay? And this first exhortation is for them to be courageous and unified in, in dealing with, with outside opposition. Okay, verse 27. Here's his first exhortation. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you, like I live and I get out of jail, (laughs) or I'm absent, I stay here, maybe even die here, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. Not being frightened, not being afraid in any way by your opponents. And there will be opponents. There will be challenges. This is a sign of the destruction for them, but for your deliverance, your lack of fear, your courage is a sign of destruction for them, but, but for your de- deliverance. And, and by the way, it's the same word, salvation, that he used about him being in prison so that God will continue to do the work of salvation in you. He's continue to grow you, sanctify you, you know what I'm saying, free you from the power of sin so that you can serve him. This, this will be for your deliverance, and this is from God. For it's been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here that I have. It's the first of three exhortations, simply this. Guys, live your life. Live your life in a manner that honors the gospel of Jesus Christ.